Welcome to Sean and Dave Make Music. This month, we collaborated with musician and film composer Alex Bornstein. He's worn many hats within the film and television industry, working as a composer, arranger, score coordinator for a ton of projects, including TV shows like Supernatural, Agent Carter, Ray Donovan, uh, as well as films like Ride Along 2, Sausage Party, Baywatch, and a ton of other stuff. Uh, go check out his IMDb page if you have time. It is more than impressive. And you've probably already heard a bunch of his music, unless you've been living under a rock for the past several years. Uh, In addition to his scoring work, this past year, Alex released a solo electronic music album titled Schematic. And we're going to kick things off right now with track number two from that album. This is called Retro Triumph. Thank you. 
So one of the first things I wanted to kind of just get into, obviously, uh, I see the posters behind you. I've looked at your IMDb page. You've done a bunch of amazing, uh, amazing things. Um, is there something that sticks out to you as kind of like a high point or what has been the most fun to work on so far? Uh, it's hard to say, you know, because I've, I've kind of worked in a lot of different facets of like the film scoring world out here in LA. And I think, you know, sometimes you get to function as sort of uh, you know, fly on the wall. And that's really exciting because, you know, when I first moved out here, you're kind of getting exposed to things that you'd always kind of wondered how they work and how they operate. And this was kind mm -hmm. of a way to sort of see how they actually, you know, functioned. Um, but, you know, it's, I'd say a high point was, you know, recently right now I'm helping out, I'm writing a lot of music uh, for a Netflix series um, with someone I used to work for as, as their assistant. And uh, it's been a lot of fun because we got to go to uh, Abbey Road and record there with an uh, orchestra in Studio One. Awesome. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, we were just there a couple weeks ago and I, I was able to conduct a good portion of the session. So that I think that right now that's that's ranking pretty high. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you allowed to tell us what that show is called? I'm not sure. They've been, re <laughs> okay, they've been no. really <laughs> weird uh, in the last three weeks. Like, we've been on it since September. And uh, at first, it was all really laid back. And then out of nowhere, they got really cagey and weird with uh, security. Mm. So I should. Pr it's probably better not, not to. I'm <laughs> sorry. Sure. Totally understandable. I've <laughs> yeah, heard Netflix is kind of weird and secretive in, in odd ways like that. And with their, like, demographics and their numbers and things like that, it, they seem to keep all that kind of info under wraps yeah it's um you don't really expect it because they you know they they put out all this great content and this and that and then you know uh i guess you know keeping a tight lid on everything is how they sort of maybe it's a, a facet of how they how they maintain that but we were we were kind of surprised you know and it's like the typical you know weird encryption internet stuff to download the video which is mm, good yeah. for it's good for security but like it you know it plays hell when you're trying to like you know get the new version of the episode because you have you know 20 minutes of music you have to conform to their new edit yeah and it's just like you just want to do your job sometimes <laughs> and you're working with those big files i'm sure you know all the extra encryption is just a, a annoying to have to go through extra hoops to get to the material that you need to work with. Yeah, it'll be like 20 gigabyte zip files. And, you know, you're just trying to get to the four gigabyte QuickTime video, but there's all this other extra, um, you know, they sometimes there isn't a lot of communication between like post-production departments and the music department. And so they kind of just give you everything that they're used to dealing with, which, you know, we only, we only deal with the audio and, you know, video can be kind of crude because we just need it to you know see what we're doing. But, you mm -hmm. know, they have to deal with uh, like all these other file formats and, Anyway, that's just, gotcha. it, it's, yeah, it's big, big yeah. stuff. Interesting. Um, so then, uh, obviously, also, you've got this album, Schematic. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to also talk a little bit about the pros and cons of film music versus uh, absolute music and something that you don't have a, any a box to fit into. Clearly, when you're working in a film, there are only... Well, you can tell me. When you're working on a film, how big is the box of possibilities that you have? Do you feel like... When you're working in the capacity of composer, at least, um, when you do have that freedom to, to be generating the material, how free is it? Is it a pretty small box that you need to fit in? You, you can think, I know they want something like this, or do you have pretty much freedom in that area? You know, it depends on the project and the people you're working with, um, you know, so it can really run the gamut. And I would say when you get started on almost anything, 
um, you know, kind of the sky's the limit. And what happens is there's this kind of rotating cylinder that you're in that kind of just gets more and more compact as you go. Hmm. The further okay. down, further down the line you go. So when you start, you can walk into, you know, the first time you're meeting with the director or producers or whoever, you know, you can walk in and say, well, I think it should be this, and this is going to blow your mind. And this is what it needs <laughs> to be. And it can be, you can really be, you know, quite grandiose with what you think the film the music should be for the film and usually that can fly but what will happen is is that through trial and error the real sound of whatever the project is starts to come out over time that way and all of those possibilities for better or worse start to fall away and gotcha. you're, you're kind of just left with whatever the reality is and that i would say sometimes could be where the con comes in of you know um People say they want something really different or they say they want something really unique. And then, you know, being a creative medium is a creative medium and you give them something that is to you different and exciting and cool. And maybe it's not, you know, exactly what they wanted. You know, it's uh, to build an analogy. It's like, you know, build me the most elaborate, amazing house I've ever seen. And you go, okay, well, here's my definition of what you're asking me to do. And they Mm -hmm. go, oh, my God, that's not that's not cool and exciting. That's garish and ugly. And there's a lot sometimes, but sometimes people, you kind of go off right in the, uh, specific path, you know? So it's like the, ob- the opposite can happen where they go in and they're like, no, 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 we want this sound and this is what we want, want it to be. And that's all we care about. And this is what it has to be. And then in those instances, you really don't have much room to wiggle around. Um, hmm. but at the end of the day, you know, is like, is even though there are a lot of, uh, constraints you have to deal with, it, no matter what, it's always one person sitting in a room having to write the music, and the, there that freedom can probably never be taken away. But that's composing as a whole. You know, it's sometimes when it's yeah, it you've be, got much sure. more. Yeah, you've got much more freedom if you're not composing to a film, right? Yeah, you by by all means. I mean, there it's like you know you are kind of starting from this elemental blank slate where you know it's nothing but silence. There's no dialogue. There's no sound effects, and you kind of. You know, um, and it's it's funny when I started schematic, the kind of, you know, how deafening that silence can be of just like, I really can do whatever I want and it's exciting, but I, I think it's something I wish and I, I wish I had the more, t- more time to do it and I'm, and I'm trying to make more time to do it because you sort of realize after a while, um, you know, you are in a specific box as a composer for film or whatever the hell they call it these days. Um, (laughs) You know, you are in a box and to kind of go back to this blank slate of you're in complete control. um, It's something you've got an empty slab of marble there that you can carve whatever you want out of. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and it's a weird place to be in too, especially when, you know, you've been working for other filmmakers, we are working for other composers, you know, that's a, it's a, it's a weird mindset to get back into because you know you've been told after five or six years by some composers well i hate synthesizers and i hate sound design and i only like Mm -hmm. big orchestral you know type scores um then you have to turn around and go did i like synthesizers did i ever enjoy that (laughs) what is that even supposed to be and uh you know you have to kind of rediscover sort of what matters to you you know as a as a composer and sometimes you find that things that you thought mattered to you don't as much you know and that happened to me with a lot of uh orchestral stuff when i was doing schematic as i kind of realized like you know all of those textures um you know 
what am I going to try to do with them? Even if it's not the most original thing, that doesn't really matter. It's just, do I find it uh, sustainable as a piece of music that can work with some things that I've learned, you know, over the years, like working for different composers and uh, doing different film scores and seeing how can I take all that and push it into a, a format that kind of can stand on its own as a piece of music. Yeah. Cool. And so what was kind of in your mind as you were composing these different pieces? Were you kind of really thinking of this as one project? Um, you know, the, the beginning of that starts with, what's the first track called? Uh, I think it's Procession. Procession, yeah. yeah. So that obviously is a is a introductory track. Were you sort of thinking of this? All your other your titles are very colorful and um, evocative, and so were you thinking of them kind of as relating to each other, sort of a concept album, or were you kind of thinking of them as separate pieces? I'd say it's more separate pieces than sort of one cohesive whole. Um, I mean, I think definitely. The idea, I had a very loose structure in my head, and, and the idea was most definitely to start with Procession as the first track, which is kind of this, it's more of a, a sustained drone kind of piece. And, you know, then from there we build into the, other, into the other tracks. But aside from that idea of I know I want to start with this kind of more pensive, sustained sound, after that it became more just about finding an idea and then spinning that into into a track you know and i would you know each gotcha. i'd say each track has kind of like a an idea that's kind of the linchpin of that one track and um that was kind of the idea it was just like i needed i wanted to come up with like these separate pieces and then i would sort of from there figure out what the best flow for them was with the exclusion okay. of of the first track yeah cuz i was going to say it does have a really nice unified sound to the whole album and a nice flow to it I think oh thank you the, the right amount of contrast yeah. and the the synth sounds as well it's an um kind of reminiscent like um it kept making me think back to trent Reznor in some of the the timbers just uh oh, cool. <laughs> it wasn't the same yeah not the same song form type of idea no but no just I, the yeah, sounds yeah that's great yeah no it's um it's funny too because like i you know i think a few years ago i never really would have thought of doing an album on my own um just because it just wasn't it you know i when I was getting into composing in school and all that, I did come like film scoring was the thing I wanted to do. And so it felt very odd to think like, well, why, you know, doing an album or putting myself out there in that way, unless it was like a collection of, you know, uh, concert pieces that I had done. And so, uh, I, th I the point I'm, I'm getting around to making is that I really didn't know a whole lot about anything like related to guys like, you know, Trent Reznor or, Tangerine Dream or a lot of these these people like who over the last 30 or 40 years have kind of defined what you can do with electronic music mm -hmm. and still make it accessible and interesting to people and uh so it's it's it was interesting kind of coming into this and doing it and then sort of retroactively going back and hearing a lot of these guys just from research and going like oh in, okay, I see, like, so almost subconsciously, like, the impact that these people have made is so profound that I kind of was stumbling into these things without realizing that, like, it's uh, maybe it's like I had heard it before. Or I, I was pushing toward a sound or a style I wasn't even aware. Um, hmm. You know, I was kind of not obviously completely copying. Cause I'm like you said, it's not the song yeah. structure, but, but just, it's just it's under the surface that exactly that influences exactly, that. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those gestures and it's... Um, it's it's interesting, you know, so I forget who it was, but they were talking about how, you know, uh, a lot of these new electronic styles and things like that are sort of the new 
world music because they have no real cultural uh, baggage, I guess you could say. Hmm. You know, they all kind of come from, you know, it's like, uh, I forget, it was but like someone, I think it was someone was talking about the, the Bukla easel in that sense, where it's just like, this instrument has only been around for 30 years and you can't tie it to one kind of background and then it makes sound that is really kind of weird and off kilter. So it kind of creates its own identity. And I think it's, it was an interesting statement just because, you know, uh, doing like an electronic album and sort of not, and and kind of seeing where it falls in that lineage of all these other artists is, is interesting to see like the things that you hit and the things that you don't hit and the sort of homages you make without realizing them. Yeah, it's funny that that can all kind of happen subconsciously and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. also yeah. work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> work well. yeah. It's convenient, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, it's, you um, know, it's, uh, it, it's interesting to like, you know, now going back on the, like I said, like hearing these other artists and kind of like, you, and seeing like, oh, interesting. Like I see where like, you know, these kinds of sounds were sort of popularized by this person, but then this guy kind of took the ball and did his, and kind of did his own thing with it. And it's, it's uh it's it's a spiritual continuation it's not like just an abject theft yeah yeah Next up, we have the first of three improvisations that we recorded together. In A Sean and Dave Make Music First, this was performed live together over Skype while we each recorded our parts separately at our location in PA and Alex's studio in California. This presented the fun challenge of having to maintain a musical dialogue while maneuvering around the unpredictable time delays inherent in video conferencing. This piece features Alex on the Bukla easel, Dave on djembe, and myself on flute. And in order to get our bearings in this new setting, we decided to use a lot of sustained, slow-moving sounds. We really weren't sure how the delay would affect our finished product, but we ended up being really happy with all of them, actually. And in another Sean and Dave Make Music First, on this episode, we're going to be presenting every single second that we spent improvising together.
And I think um, it's interesting. You've got a very unique set of skills as a film scoring composer because you have to be pretty much the most versatile because you can't, you know, you get hired for a job and you can't say, no, I can't do that. Right. <laughs> if they, <laughs> if they want something, you've got to give it to them. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I helped out on, um, that this movie Baywatch that came out earlier in the year. And one of the problems that consistently kept popping up and it thankfully actually did fall on me at one point, but was, uh, there was a track by run the jewels that was in the, in the movie and, uh, you know, they couldn't, it was too much money to get it into the film. And mm-hmm. so they're like, so you guys can just do, do a score cue that just sounds like run the jewels and, you know, uh, but not too much like run the jewels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So they're like not the notes, but like the sound of the synths and the sound of like the way they're sampling and everything. And, um, it was really, what's like, there, there is a point where you know, you walk this line of being like, okay, yeah, like if they wanted me to do, if one cue needs to be like a bossa nova samba jazz thing, and then the next cue needs to be like techno dance music, like it's comedies tend to be like this. So they're very mm-hmm. schizo- yeah. schizophrenic. And, um, but there is a limit you get to, like at the end of the day, you know, I could learn every trick that Run the Jewels has. And if I did it and it sounded just like them, there might be a certain amount of confirmation bias where they're still going to think like, well, you didn't quite because it's you and mm-hmm, yeah. y- you know, you're not run the jewels. And the, but then also too, at the end of the day, like you, you know, at least for me, I certainly know that like I have limitations of how diverse I can be, but it's mm-hmm. like you said, I can't, I don't go into meetings saying that this is more of the internal monologue. Right. And, gotcha. uh, the neurotic composer. Exactly. Yeah. Brain. And you, you kind of leave and you go, okay, well like what can I do? to to sound as convincing as as convincing as possible and you kind of you know that's where you do a lot of research and listening and that was kind of how i sort of started learning synthesizers was because i was gonna i was starting to have to learn how to write like certain composers or certain artists and um because you do it's like you make yourself more marketable when they go can you sound like this guy and you can just say yeah absolutely and you turn in that Mm -hmm. track you turn in that track and they uh you know they they believe that you can you can pull it off commercials are really relentless like that oh yeah because they'll study (laughs) yeah because they'll you know they you know you're doing if you work at an ad house you know you'll be doing x amount of commercials a week and you're demoing for just as many that you won't get and you know they're throwing every kind of style at you and it has to be completely convincing you know and it's uh you know it's you sort of see like what kind of styles of music are popular at the time by like what's going into commercials and a lot of those a lot of those guys just have to like completely nail the sound without uh without really missing a beat and it's easy to do because like you know at the end of the day you are always starting from a bit of a blank slate and uh you know it's it's you realize how you know how talented some people are by how you know hard it is to nail their sound mm-hmm. well uh actually for this probably for this episode we did a little like oh, yeah. commercial jingle <laughs> ukulele and whistling and like, oh, nice. just to to see what we could crap out in like <laughs> a few minutes um and i think it sounds pretty good but yeah that's that's kind of the formula we followed because that's what we hear on every single commercial these days Oh yeah, it's completely permeated everything. I'll be curious to see where it goes from here because I think before this it was like it seemed like it was more of a harder rock sound or mm-hmm. you know, it's uh but this is like, you know, it's like every I feel like a lot of uh 
kids and like baby food commercials and car commercials and um, maybe car commercials are the thing to pay attention to. I feel like because I see so many of them on TV. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a long stretch. I mean, at least three or four years where almost every commercial sounded just like the Lumineers. Like they was just everybody was just like, give me something kind of like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and it, the in, big and echo and the acoustic and the stomping. And we don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. We want them to feel something. <laughs> yeah. No, some of these some of these briefs that you read, you know, when you get like and it hap I hate to say it, but it happens sometimes with, you know, some like film and TV stuff too, but you know, you get like this laundry list of, of names that you're supposed to sound like. And, um, you know, I, some, I, I saw the Lumineers on one like two or three years ago, you know, and you kind of just like put your head in your hands because you're just like, I, it, you're not, you can, there's sort of, sometimes the, the bar gets set so high, it just can't, it can't be matched, you know, in the sense mm -hmm. that like, Again, like I could get the guy from the Lumineers in the studio and I could do a whole track that sounds just like them. But if I turn it in and say that I did it, they're going to be like, well, you know, it doesn't have like that same energy. You know, it's whereas if like the inverse happened, if I had done it and, it, and I nailed the sound and I said, oh, well, you know, um, you know, this is did you ever hear this Lumineers track. I can get it for free. They would freak out. You know, it's just this, yeah. yeah, there's so much weird cultural bias and perception that plays into this aspect of, of creating music because, you know, at the end of the day, it's there to serve a function and people kind of don't pay attention to it and process it necessarily in the same way they might a piece of music where they're just sitting down and going, okay, I'm going to just judge this on its own merits. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think uh, there's so few people out there who do that these days, right? I, I, a lot of people don't sit in their bedroom and listen to a composition and think, how did, did I like that? <laughs> but they'll go see a movie and judge it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's weird too, because you know, the way music kind of exists now, um, and it's certainly been an issue with, you know, getting schematic out into the world is, um, you know, people kind of see music as such a, uh, what's the, I'm trying to think what the, like omniscient thing. They just, it kind of just exists and they don't really, the idea of seeking it out for its own enjoyment, I think, is is sort of, it's turning into something else. And I think the people who really appreciate and listen to music now, um, you know, they there's also, it's difficult to get some people to break out of, like, comfort zones and try new things because they don't want to have, you know, it's, it, that, that leap of faith is a lot harder to take now because you can so expertly tailor what you listen to. Mm -hmm. oh, to, yeah. to your there'll own. be endless examples in that same vein that you exactly, can forever exactly. yeah whereas like i think gone is the time where you know it's certainly how i discovered a lot of music when i was you know younger you know even though i was very much into film scores i would like every now and then i would i would go and buy like you know uh, a composer that i'd never heard of someone was like oh well if you like mm -hmm. elliot goldenthal you should li listen to john corleano and you listen and you're like oh i really like john corleano and that kind of yeah. sends you down this path but, you know, uh, you have to take that leap of faith. I, I bought a, an album once by another composer and I wanted to throw it out the window, you know, and it's, and it, and it, and it's sort of, you know, you, but those experiences are all very important. And I think the same thing with movies now is kind of happening where, you know, um, you don't really stray out of your comfort zone. Like, well, that movie sold out. Like, what else can I see? Well, there's 18 screens that are showing the new Star Wars, so I don't have to worry about not <laughs> seeing it. And, try, and maybe seeing, you know, I, uh, what was the... There was, when I was younger, uh, I really wanted to see the, this movie. 
called uh, October Sky. It was about like the this. Oh yeah. Ro- yeah. yeah. And I really wanted to see it, and then but like you know I got overruled to go see another movie, and I'm like I don't want to see this other movie. Like this movie looked stupid, and I don't care, and it, like it's, I'm gonna hate it, and blah 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 blah. I mean like why do I want to see a movie called The Matrix? And, <laughs> and then you see it, and it's a you know it's a transformative experience, and mm-hmm. that is that's a very exciting thing that I don't think is happening a whole lot anymore. And um, to also with with film music in particular, um, audiences are kind of more savvy than they get credit for, and uh, they know when they're being manipulated now, or at least I think they're a lot more sensitive to it. And I think it's put music in a very interesting position to have to be very careful on how it operates dramatically. Yeah. And uh, you know, in for film score, you know, film score ophiles. I don't know if that's a term, but for people who really like it is now. Yeah, <laughs> for people who really like uh, film music on its own, um, they're having a hard time because music's having to be a lot more deft at how it navigates all that. And uh, you know, that's why you hear a lot of belly aching about how there's no more great orchestral film score writing and there's no more great themes and used to go into a movie and come out whistling the theme and I, I really don't subscribe to that idea at all anymore because I think it I think it actually creates a much more interesting challenge for a composer to write music that's effective without that manipulation. And I think and I think doing just, you know, stuff that's been done with the scoring that's worked in the past is really not going to do anything that great for the medium. I think all the, the really interesting composers are the ones that are doing, you know, the interesting films and, you know, it's the stuff that's in like the big budget things where you would have maybe heard a great theme 30 years ago. Uh, people don't really need that kind of structure in the, in film music anymore. So it, it is, it is changing. And I, I don't know what it's changing into, but I think, uh, it's an interesting time nonetheless, because I think all the, a lot of rules are kind of being rewritten of what you can and can't do. Definitely. That's sure. certainly a, an exciting time to be doing what you're doing, I'm sure. Now we've got two back-to-back tracks to present you with. The first is Just Dave and I, and this is our attempt at a little television music. We unfortunately weren't able to score a feature film in an afternoon, oh well, but uh, we nailed this playful little commercial jingle. It's me on ukulele, whistling and percussion, and Dave on bass and acoustic guitar. The second track is the second of our live via Skype improvisations with Alex. This one features Alex on the Buchla easel once again, myself on flute, and Dave on percussion and glockenspiel. And this time we decided to be a little bit more bold and try something significantly more rhythmically active.
So I have a question about um, specifically with you and and film scoring. Sure. Um, so I'm curious, especially you were just saying about kind of where the medium is going. Mm -hmm. um, for you personally, I know every job is probably vastly different, but when you're working as a composer for uh, for film scoring, what right now is the thing that gets you the most excited? Is it working with um, different timbres or instrumentation? Is it different harmonic language? Is it uh, different like rhythmic games? Like what is the thing on the projects that you're always most excited to tinker with and kind of, you know, let your creativity explore? I think it's kind of figuring out... <sighs> It's kind of figuring out what makes each project tick, you know, at least in regards to film. It's like when you're looking at, at, a, at something and being like, okay, what, what's going to be the combination of sounds that makes me instinctually go, there it is, now it's sticking. Yeah. Like that's mm -hmm. like, for me, like I've noticed that, you know, I tend to start writing the fastest and start feeling the best about my work when I start feeling like everything I'm doing just kind of sticks to the movie. And I feel like, the, and the structure is there. And uh, right now I'd say that the, it really is exciting when I start kind of, when I force myself to not go to sounds that I'm used to using. And I really take that extra time to like find a sound that could be really, give the score some identity. And, um, you know, it's that, it's, I'd say it's that first, 
it's usually the first week I work on it and then the last couple of weeks. And then everything in between is, is a mixture of good, bad, and terrible. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, talk, kind of equating music writing to cooking and baking and having those in kind of separate categories. And I feel like maybe that applies to film scoring. Sometimes you get to be creating the whole recipe and throwing things in the pot and seeing what tastes good. And then there are other times when you have to fit into this specific recipe because if you bake it and it doesn't come out perfectly, then the whole thing is... Well, baking, what is, you want, baking is right? a delicate balance for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, <laughs> there's some chemistry going <laughs> for sure, and I, I think it's that it's that me- uh, issue of like I think you know composers or f- composers that are doing this kind of stuff I think really have to enjoy the craftsmanship aspect of it. You know, you have to be able to look at experiences that maybe aren't as exciting um, creatively, but can say, oh, well, I learned how to do this. Now I know mm-hmm. how to. You know, I think that's. Um, I know some composers do this and some don't. And the ones that don't tend to be the most miserable um, because, because they're constantly having to move inside boxes that they don't like to move inside of. But they yeah. can't, they can't, like I, I was writing music uh, for a kid's show. And for me, it was exciting because it was all like ukuleles, guitars, and like snaps and claps. And I'm a, I'm a pianist by training. So like I, I really don't know much about the guitar. Um, so it was a really fun challenge to actually have to learn, you know, and write music that was functional for guitar players and would work in that sort of sound. And like, now that's something I know how to do. And I think sometimes the, the instinct is to be a little bit more cynical and jaded and like, Oh, well, who cares? I don't know how to Mm. do that. Why would I want to do that? That doesn't sound interesting (laughs) to me, you know, cause it is, it's the, it's not music I would necessarily gravitate towards, but the experience of writing it was a lot of fun. Yeah, sure. Well, that brings us to the next topic of what music do you generally gravitate towards? What do you listen to for pleasure when you're not studying for a score or whatever? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say these days. Um, I mean, I was, I was very much into, uh, you know, a lot of synth wave stuff over the last year or two, obviously. Um, you know, like I heard of, like I, someone told me about calm trues for the first time and I thought he was really interesting. Um, you know, I was, I, I was going back to like guys like, Trent Reznor and some of their stuff. Um, Alessandro Cortini does some really cool stuff. Uh, he has he has some albums that he he was actually a big inspiration for Schematic because he does a, uh, a series of albums that are exclusively on the Buchla Easel, which is sort of this oh. weird self-contained music instrument thing. And uh, you know, I liked I liked what he was doing where he was kind of it was this very pros it sounded very process based type music. And but it's had a had a very interesting kind of improvisatory style at the same time, um, and I do I do listen to a lot of film music uh, when I'm not busy. I shouldn't, but I do. Um, <laughs> do you think that has a negative effect? Well, I you know I I'm a big believer um, in uh, John Powell, who's a really great film composer, and you know he's a very he's kind of known for having his own idiosyncratic style that can function in all these really high profile movies, and um, you know he in every interview like they're like what advice can you give for young composers you know that ghastly question and <laughs> um but he, and he always says he's like he's like don't listen to film music don't do it it's just he's like i don't get why people do this and i don't understand it because because eventually yeah it does kind of eat away or he thinks it eats away at your creativity and i don't entirely agree but i know where he's coming from and so i try 
I try to be careful, but you know, I still do seek it out now and then, but it is, it is getting harder to find stuff that can function away from, from the films that they're, they're scored for, you know, and that, that's a whole other debate about whether or not that's a good thing, but I, I do listen to it still uh, pretty frequently. Cool. Yeah. What, uh, you mentioned that when you entered composition, your composition program, you were already had in mind that you wanted to be a film composer. How did that idea start? What, was there something that inspired you right away? Was it a lifelong love of film music? Yeah, I, I've been listening to soundtracks, like, since I was, you know, maybe like eight or nine years old. Like I just, for whatever reason, I've always had a, uh, my ears always kind of gravitated towards it. You know, like I would like I remember wanting the RoboCop soundtrack when I was a kid and never being able to never being able to find it. Um, you know, so it was always something that like I, you know, really it just kind of spoke to me. And uh, so I kind of grew up with that with that kind of love and that interest. Uh, but I didn't really I didn't really start studying music until I was in college. I kind of would fall. I did a couple of years of piano lessons when I was a kid. Um, I didn't connect with any of it with my teacher and I kind of fell out of it. And, um, sort of then music was more of just like a fascination really than a, than something I was trying to pursue. Cause I didn't think, you know, it was that sort of that Olympian idea of music where, well, I didn't start playing violin in the womb. So what's the point? And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so, you know, when I got into college, I was still like, I was even more into film music at that point. I hit this weird bend when I was in high school where I just started, I would spend any money I had on buying music and buying film scores. And, um, you know, I got, I had like, you know, like 500 CDs by the time I was in college and just was really just steeped in all of it. But I didn't know how to write music. And I, I only remembered what I knew from my couple years of piano lessons and basic music theory. And I, uh, I started experimenting on my own just with that limited knowledge and trying to make music. And I started, you know, being like, oh, okay, like if I just like have a note, if I just create like a drone sound on the bottom, I can do kind of stuff on top. And <laughs> I knew that if I wanted to keep doing it, I was going to have to start studying music theory. And I didn't even think about it as a career. It was just like, oh, it would be cool if I knew how to write music. And um, I just kind of met the right professors at the right time that were sort of enablers of being like, well, no, keep at it and keep doing it. And then eventually I, I switched majors into music, um, you know, studied and practiced a lot and um, knew I wanted to stay in school for another couple of years. And so I did uh, grad school as a result. And it was kind of a I, I've been lucky that, that it kind of came so late in life, but I've been able to keep up with it. Yeah, that's Sweet. really uh, surprising and impressive that you got that late of a start. I didn't know. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it was, uh, yeah, it was, and it was, it was surprising to me too. <laughs> I kind of, <laughs> I kind of kept, you know, you, I mean, uh, after a while it was fine, but like for the first couple of years, you know, I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop of, you know, okay, well, you know, diatonic harmony is no problem, but chromatic harmony is going to be what gets me, you know, or hmm. counterpoint is going to be the thing that sinks this ship. And, you know, um, I just kind of was able to keep up with it enough. And, you know, I think once I, when I got, when I tested out of stuff at, uh, for grad school, that was kind of when I was like, all right, you can stop the insecurity now. I, I think, I think yeah. it's, I think it's, you know, I think you're going to be okay. I had to do one semester of remedial RLs at NYU. Me too. Me too. I, that <laughs> oh, was, really? And, and you know, I just, and I remember getting that and just being like, I'll take it. That's fine. 
like that because it was uh yeah passed it, out of theory and yeah it's like I, te- I tested out of theory and history and i was like you know what one semester of ear training like that's it, everybody's gonna stop doing ear training the second they get out of school so i might as well do it for one more semester <laughs> yeah i think it probably would have actually benefited me if i would have been put in like rl's three but i certainly wasn't going to ask for that so i just right. skated through rl's one and i was i was happy with that yeah exactly but, but i'm sure i could have actually used another semester of training but i still feel like every now oh, well. and then i could use some some brushing up you know just on like maybe like some rhythmic dictation or just you know working on my relative pitch a little but you know it's who has, mm-hmm. who has the time <laughs> yeah n- not anybody i know yeah exactly <laughs> Next up, we have our final improvisation with Dave on bass guitar, Alex on synth, and me tearing and crinkling various materials into a reverb-saturated mic.
can you talk a little bit about um, the different jobs that you have had other than just straight composer in the film industry and what you like about them, what you don't? what the different titles kind of mean, what the day-to-day is like. You mean just within, like, the, like, kind of entertainment industry as a whole out here? I mean, like, uh, the different jobs that you've had. I see, like, scoring coordinator, and I don't know what that means. Yeah, yeah. So, um, to be honest, most people out here don't even know what they really mean. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's a very weird ecosystem out here. And uh, I'd, I'd actually, here or in New York, or wherever you're kind of working in, this kind of stuff. And, you know, so I, I came out here and I started out, you know, literally, you know, working for free as an, as an intern. And, uh, you know, you kind of start out as getting coffees and lunches and dinners and, you know, prescriptions and like bedding. (laughs) And like, it's like you, and then eventually you kind of get batted around. And, uh, you know, I started working, you know, my first like real full-time gig, was with the composer uh, Christopher Leonard's, and you know that was kind of where I started getting actual credits. Um, I got a couple on. Um, I got an uncredited thing on The Dark Knight Rises because I was doing sample development over at Hans Zimmer's studio, and cool. you know cool. there the sample development basically means like you're inputting samples into Contact, and uh, you know helping design the patches that because he does all of his own sound design for every movie and you know there you're kind of helping create the patches that he'll be using to write some of the cues um you know scoring coordinator those credits kind of technically mean you're working for a composer as a in a non non musical to musical capacity so you're doing everything from answering emails and booking musicians or at least talking to the contractor that books them um and to and like printing stems but then you're also maybe doing like music programming you know whereas the composer will write out a sketch of a cue and then you're going in and and filling in and programming all the midi data so it sounds like a presentable mock-up okay cool gotcha interesting um what's uh, do how much this is kind of going back to your intern days but Mm -hmm. how much of that do you think is like almost hazing where they're just trying to weed out the people who don't want to be there and kind of trying to gauge people's potential do you think that's kind of what it is or how many or 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 another sort of related question that you can address too is how many of people in those unpaid internships make it to your level what percentage do you think it's it's small um you know it's a hard it's a tricky thing because I think it really depends where you where you are and who you're working for. You know, I think some people do treat it as a kind of professional hazing um, because sometimes people do come in and they, you know, they do have kind of an odd attitude about how they think it's all going to go down, you know, in the sense that they come in and they, you know, on an intern's first day, they're asking like, well, when do I get to start writing music for, for this show? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just like, um, there's just no reasoning with people like that. And, you know, it's you it's a very difficult thing to explain to them, like what they should be doing. And sometimes they start resenting the tasks that you give them. And, you know, I someone said it to me, I think, on my first day at 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 remote control, which is the Hans Zimmer studio. And I remember thinking at the time I was like, "Eh, I don't know. But they said, you know, if we can't trust you to get us a lunch order on time, why are we going to trust you to deliver a hard drive to Disney? Or why are we going to trust you to write a, you know, a music cue in a certain amount of time? And at the time I thought it was a little bit uh, of an odd thing to say. And it's still a little bit weird when I say it now, but I I understand it 
the wisdom better at this point in my career. Um, yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, yeah, I mean, right. those it's projects a, it, are so big, they have to be a well-oiled machine. So. Yeah, well, and it's, you know, I think the thing is, too, is, you know, uh, it, it's it's true in a very utilitarian sense. You know, I think there are other ways to gauge what people can and can't do, but because things move so fast and sometimes people are so sleep-deprived and they're so busy and there's so much to do and they just don't have time to focus, they do kind of need to have quick ways to determine if someone can do something or not. And it is, it is true, like, um, if someone were to come to me and they were the greatest composer in the world at 23 years old and they couldn't, you know, uh, they couldn't be bothered just to like help me out with like, Hey, like I have a flat tire or that's a silly thing. Um, like my car is something's wrong with my car and I have to take it to the shop. Can you go pick me up? Like if they get, mm-hmm. if, if they can't even be bothered to help me with that, I'm just asking them for general help and they give me attitude because they have too bu- they're too busy writing, you know, these cues cause they're the greatest composer in the world. Like that actually creates a bad work environment. And, um, that's something you don't really think about when you're composing but it's true you know you're collaborating and working with people and work morale and all these things that you know sound so corporate and nasty are really actually very important because that totally makes sure. sense it's like a personality test to make sure that yeah, yeah I, you fit in it's the it can i be a nightmare I there was someone i worked with and uh he was saying like you know he was and i remember thinking like okay well i need to tell him i know how to use pro tools and i know how to use cubase and i'm like i really know all this stuff up and down left and right and i kind of started rattling off all these these things i thought he wanted to hear and he just said he's like he's like i'm going to teach you everything you need to learn i just need to make sure i'm not going to kill you after working with you 7 days a week <laughs> you know and it's and that and now that i'd say rings the most true to me and i think that might be an element of the sort of trial by fire hazing atmosphere of some internships is that they need to see that you are someone that they they want to be around because you're going to see these people all the time and uh you have to it's a it's a issue of trust it's an issue of work ethic and a lot of these things that um i guess in a way it's good because they kind of give you the benefit of the doubt that that you know what you're doing because that's you know um i started writing music for composers with them never having heard anything i've ever done before Mm-hmm. They just assumed that they were going to hear what I did and thought it was good. So that, in retrospect, was pretty terrifying, but I just didn't think about it at the time. <laughs> yeah, got to do what you got to do. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Um, and then the last kind of thing I wanted to talk about, just going a little bit back to film music versus uh, absolute music. Is there, well, two things. Is, first, is there a track that you feel particularly great about on Schematic that you would like us to share on the episode? We'd like to at least play one thing oh cool we can pick our favorite if we want but (laughs) probably picking what you think is best would be even better it's a toss-up i would probably say uh retro triumph um which is track two i think um that Mm -hmm. would probably be the one i feel like that one for me was like where i really started feeling like an idea of what i was going to do with the cd and it's actually the last track I did for the album, I but I knew but I knew it was work really well as a second track after Procession, um, but Procession's probably like my personal favorite just because I really I was really happy with some of the the off kilter sounds in that one where I was I, okay. the uh, there's like this weird vocal sound effect that kind of comes in at one point and it's actually just a processed oboe 
Mm. So and it's and it's a sampled oboe, you know. So like on its it on its own, it, it sounds like an insult to everything that the oboe stands for. But when I <laughs> when I was able to like put it through all of these filters and processing, it really sort of turned into this very expressive sound. So I, I it's a it's a toss up, but I think I think Retro Triumph is more fun. <laughs> well, we're not working with any time constraints, so maybe we'll play both. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. That's that's the good thing about this podcast is that we can literally do whatever we want and like make whatever sounds we want. And Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's why we're doing it. <laughs> um, and then the very last thing I, I wanted to say was like, what's the uh, obviously when you go see a movie that or a TV show that's in its final stages, that's the payoff, right? For for that side of your composing, right? Uh, sometimes. Or is it the work that goes into it? It's the, for me. It's the work that goes into it. I, I feel I feel best when. I do a cue and I listen to it and I really feel like I'm, I'm really leaning into what the scene is doing, um, you know, and getting those, getting people to approve the cues, like when they hear it and they really like it, um, you know, and then when, when I've kind of got all of my stems in like one gigantic folder and I just sort of hit mm. send on the upload, <laughs> that's like, I, that's, <laughs> I feel, I feel really good. Like when I've, when I've turned in something that's complete and, feels full to me the the getting it out there is is a, is a good part but i wouldn't say it's my favorite gotcha then how how long is it usually in between that time where you hit send and when you get to actually uh consume the finished product it varies you know i sometimes i've we've done stuff where it's going on tv in like three days um oh, you wow. know, but then sometimes <laughs> we'll do something where the movie doesn't come out for a year uh you know, and then like some of the some of the Netflix movies that I've done on my own, that's like three to six months before they're out there. So it, it's okay. there's never one metric to judge it by. Lastly, we have the aforementioned piece Procession. This is the opening track off Alex's album Schematic, which you can and should go find on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your music. There are also examples of his work on his website, alexanderbornstein.com. So follow the link in the episode description to check it out and learn more about him.
Thank you so much for listening to Sean and Dave Make Music. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. If you have any comments or like to submit an idea or a prompt for us to improvise off of, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Sean and Dave Make Music. And a huge special thanks to our guest, Alex, who did a brilliant job arranging and recording this month's rendition of our theme song. It was so good, we didn't want to touch it. Uh, we're going to close this episode with his version one more time. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next month with a new guest.